Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we're joined by Matt Edgerton, Fidelity Analyst and Portfolio Manager, for a look at investment opportunities with an ESG lens. The 2022 United Nations Climate Change Conference is underway in Egypt, with global policymakers coming together to discuss several key climate change issues, including how to reduce greenhouse gas emissions reaching net zero by 2050, and the ongoing energy crisis. But the conference hasn't come without criticism of America's Inflation Reduction Act. So, what are the implications between the two? And is there a commitment from the U.S. financial community to fund the energy transition? Matt unpacks this and more with host Brian Borsakowski today. A few additional key topics include the role of oil and gas in the future, if rich countries should be compensating poor countries for the effects of climate change, how ESG ratings are created, and what is Fidelity's approach to ESG metrics and ratings. Today's podcast was recorded on November 18th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So obviously the big news today is COP27 ending and it's been going on for a couple of weeks now. What have you been noticing from that? There was at the beginning, you know, before this started, a lot of people weren't sure how this would follow up to COP26. What are your observations? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, no, a lot of questions. I, mean, I think in general, this is all about implementation. COP27, COP26, more about target setting. There's an important difference there. But I think it's critical that you've seen, you know, obviously Joe Biden there, but President Xi as well turning in. And I think all the big hitters are on the same platform, which is really important when we talk about implementation. And for Biden, I think it's coming at a time you mentioned at the start, the, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, and that is demonstrating the US is back on the table, back in terms of thinking about climate leadership. And that's important too. And it's the kind of momentum that that brings, brings to the party. I think other than that, you know, you've seen things like deforestation pick up from, from the, from the COP26, that was a theme there, and, and President Lula from, from Brazil, uh, you know, promising to, to kind of um, end deforestation in the Amazon, or at least in the Brazilian Amazon, and that's important as well. I think for me, the bigger kind of the really high-level discussion point of observation is, is around what the UN would term loss and damage, and that's a, yeah, the sense that you know rich countries should compensate poor countries for the impacts of climate change and help drive and help support that transition away from you know fossil fuel energy. There's not been a lot of progress on that. It seems like, in, it's in fairness, we'll see what comes out today in some of the, the documentation. But that seems like it's still, you know, something to be sort of discussed over time. It's obviously a difficult topic, and I think within that, you know, I think you, have, you know, some areas of I guess promise would be pointed to the kind of Indonesian coal deal. And so there's a $10 billion transition package that seems to be supported or coming through as part of the discussions behind the, behind the scenes here. It's being supported by seven international banks, which is a kind of a new a new piece of that. So HSBC, Bank of America, City. Uh, have been named there as well. So that's that's really important. It's it's really, really encouraging. And it's modeled on something from, from the COP26. The South Africa had this uh, this $8.5 billion package to help support transition from coal in South Africa. So, so that's important. And then the last bit I would say from a sort of financial industry perspective, 
Um, people might be familiar with GFANS, which is this Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Yeah, a bit of a tongue twister, but it was set up by, by Mark Carney. That now has $150 trillion of assets sitting behind that. And I think that's going to be a very important vehicle to, to try and encourage that flow of capital that you mentioned earlier. And I think, you know, I was, sitting at a, I was at a dinner at an ESG conference over the summer and I was sitting by one of the GFAN's board members and we talk about some of the intricacies behind the scenes. And he was making the point that, you know, you had all these signups, it's fantastic news, it's great support. It's now about shepherding that. How do you, how do you kind of shape what it's a massive and disparate asset base and a bunch of different interests into kind of action and transition action? I think what we've seen from, from COP27 is, is GFANS committing to, by, by next fall, providing a kind of open source database uh, for different projects, transition projects, and spotlight progress. And so they can help dictate or help encourage capital flows into the areas most needed. Great. Um, so it sounds like progress, some progress was made. I think there was some um, concern before. Would the momentum be there to see this through? Would people be excited about continuing the work that they did at COP26? But from your view, it, it sounds like, you know, there is that momentum to carry forward into the coming year. I think that's right. Yeah, the, the whole phrase of keeping one and a half degrees alive was, was still thrown around. I think on balance, that was felt that that was still the case. Some of the wording maybe has been watered down. We're talking about two degrees again. Also, it's a little bit worrying, but in general, there's some areas of optimism I think we can point to. So tell me a bit about the Inflation Reduction Act. That was big, you know, big news for all sorts of reasons. Climate change was, was just a part of that. When, when you saw that getting passed, I mean, what are some of the key, uh, I guess, areas that you're paying attention to from, from the IRA? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in general terms, it's about a $300 billion package, and roughly can slice it slightly differently. But you know, the biggest part of the plan, it comes in two parts. The first is an extension of what was already existing, some energy credits that were already in the system. So it's an extension for 10 years. But critically, it also includes a, a piece where the US has to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by 75% within the plan. So as long as that's not the case, the plan is still live. And what that means is that that extension of credits could be way longer than 10 years. So this is something that I think has been missed a little bit in the documentation. The understanding is a complex document. Um, but I was speaking to a utility company a few weeks back, and they believe these, these credits could actually be in place to the 2040s, even the 2050s. And so obviously that's a, a hugely different sort of scale than the 10 years that's kind of been thrown around. That's, that's one kind of part of it. The second part of it is the, the credits they'll provide for domestic cons- uh, manufacturing and, and supporting localization of, of, of inputs across the kind of clean tech chain in particular. And that's important for things like solar and wind, where these are long dated investments and having that kind of visibility on that funding, that support is really important. And that should kind of catalyze you know, local, local, um, local investment. I think one of the, the high level points here, and this is a, it's obviously still fairly new, but when we think about this on a longer dated perspective, you know, the competition for green dollar you know, investment capital is, is a global story, right? Just as the climate change is a global story, so is the allocation of capital. And so potentially with this deal, it could really elevate the U.S. to even maybe even above Europe in some of the some of these you know decision points as to where do you put that dollar of capital. And I think when we think about it, you know, much longer term, you could go and be optimistic. You could kind of get to a point where there's a sort of flywheel where you you invest today, you bring down, you further bring down the cost of these you know, technologies, clean tech technologies, and by doing that, you have this kind of new and this is very much the, you know this is very much the bull case, but you have the situation where the U.S. industrial base and the residential base sits on this sort of low-cost clean energy, and maybe even takes over the mantle from from low-cost gas, right? And that's so you could get to that point eventually. And it's all about this flywheel. So when we try and think about the impact longer term, it's much bigger than the, the 300 billion that we're talking about right now. So this 
legislation will have a real impact. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And we're seeing, I mean, I was, I was at a conference last week, an industrial conference, meeting a bunch of companies right across the, uh, the spectrum. And, and, and all the companies, even if you're, you know, you're making some kind of widget or you're, you know, you're, you're directly involved with insulation or you're, make, you're making solutions to help reduce water intensity, whatever you do in an industrial chain, and most companies have some exposure, there's this underpin here, right? It's, it's in different buckets. There is something you can call out related to the IRA. And I think what that means is when we're obviously in a, in a softer economic environment, we're all trying to work out, you know, are we in a recession? Are we not? You know, what, how close are we? What you can at least say is over the medium term, there, there's things that like the IRA, like this sort of things around support for electric vehicles that exist that you can sort of point to and feel better about. Right. In the GFC, looking through that, you couldn't say that there were things the other side. You know, you're all trying to call the, the immediate term, of course, but at least there are things to be constructive about. And I think when I look at the you know, the U.S. industrial base as a whole, that's very constructive versus other geographies in particular. And you think about things like reonshoring, be it a further tailwind. So I think I think that's one of the messages that, that came from the conference study when I was there last week in Chicago. So let's talk about ESG maybe a bit more generally. And just uh, it's been an interesting year, um, given, you know, geopolitical conflict, um, energy crisis in Europe. You have sort of people on one side saying, hey, no, this, you know, this proves we need to have more oil and gas because of the energy issues that are happening in Europe. And then you have other people saying, uh no, this actually proves that we need to speed up the transition, that we can't rely on oil and gas. We need more renewables and, and other sources of energy. I'm not going into the politics here, but what does maybe um, do you see uh, sort of the future of ESG? You know, is it uh, maybe it's not cut and dry? I don't know. How, how does what's going on now today kind of impact maybe the, 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 the you know, the market that, that you're paying attention to? Yeah, no, it, it's a it's a really important issue. As we said before, I mean, I think. Yeah, we'll get to the politics of that. Everyone's different views on that, and that's totally fine. I think I think what I would say is, in general terms, the time horizon matters, right? I think we can all agree that this this transition, and I find this really interesting. This is a once in planet transition away from fossil fuels. Right? In two hundred years' time, it's it's not even going to be a relevant discussion, right? So it's all about time horizon. When when does it matter? Yeah, we say generally speaking, maybe oil demand peaks in twenty thirty. So it's still very much a relevant uh, industry. It's still very much needed to support the transition, whether it's oil or gas or the different facets of fossil fuel energy use. That's not going away. But I think from an ESG perspective, you know, it's important to acknowledge that. I think it doesn't necessarily mean that an ESG fund has to invest in oil and gas. It, you know, we need to protect client choice. Clients can, can allocate towards funds with mandates that can support that kind of thing. I think in general terms, it's important that we remember that oil and gas companies typically self-funded. They're not, it's not as if equity investors are injecting capital into these, these companies. That's not how it goes. For bond investors, that's a little bit different, you know, supporting capital in different ways. So it's, it's, it's still a, an important point. But again, in general terms, you know, when I think about the way ESG interacts with this, that one of the debates, and we've seen a, a high profile company in Canada, I won't name it, but investing in fossil fuel transition. So it's to say, you own a company that you sort of say, okay, we're going to wind down this production or we're going to replace it with, with clean energy and we're going to manage it in a responsible way. I think that's a, that raises an, some interesting questions, right? It's, 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 it is, you know, arguably, we've all talked about the need to to encourage change and engage with companies and and make sure that we we hold companies to account in those kinds of plans. But there's a role to play. It's, if a company can demonstrate that without their involvement, this would not have happened, then that's clearly an impact, right? I, can, I think we can make that case. And so I think it's 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 nuance in the discussion. It's not about just bashing one side or the other. It's becoming a little bit more sensible and then making sure that the mandates are very clear. The portfolios that we all manage are very clear about what we actually invest in and what is the philosophy. And, and where are the exclusions? And making sure that's clear and consistent. I think that's what we'd like to hope to, to get to. 
over time. I mean, ESG, you know, a lot of people do focus on the environment, but but what is the progress that you're seeing on the S and the G? Is that improving as well? Yeah, I, th- I think the S point, you know, when, when I saw invest in the US entirely. So if I think when the conversation happened with companies right across the industries about S, it's very much data gathering. It's still a little bit early. So they're saying, okay, let's, let's begin with, let's, let's understand our workforce. Let's understand, you know, what matters to them. Let's understand kind of where we could work harder, where, where we let sort of drop the ball. And then let's lay out a plan. So at the moment, I would say, yeah, most companies have, have got a good sense of their workforce and what matters. It's just now kind of integrating that into a, a thoughtful response. I think in general, you know, you're seeing, you know, I look at the data across the different industries. I think in general, there's still limited progress when it comes to ensuring diversity uh, exists right through the organization. So you're seeing it, you know, at the entry level, you're seeing it in things like stats around, you know, application funnels, widening funnels to make sure that there's equal opportunity across different forms of diversity. You're seeing that, but you're not necessarily seeing it translate all the way through to senior leadership C-suite. That's going to take time. I think we all appreciate that. But it's, it's upon us, I think, only through our engagements with companies to, to continue to, to further that and, and require disclosure. Because I think through disclosure, it means that within a company, different, you know, HR team has to talk with the operational team, has to talk with different geographies, you know, across the organization, understand where are they falling behind, where they're not doing enough work, you know, where can they improve things. And disclosure is an important piece of that. It's not, it shouldn't be dismissed. On the, on the G side, I think, you know, we, at Fidelity, we have a, a, um, a voting policy we want to see, um, it, it's sort of a GNS uh, theme, but we want to see a minimum of 30% um, board representation by females. And, and at the moment, you know, in the US, um, we're not always there. I don't know exactly the split as to what, what share of companies would fall below that, but my guess is it's probably a quarter. I and mean, this is a, a complete guess, but just ballpark. It feels like that based on my interactions. And so we're trying to encourage companies um, to improve their diversity of boards and, and if we don't actually, if we don't see that, we will vote against the head of the nominating committee in the cases where that um, where that hasn't met our threshold. So that's a new policy at the third level that we are implementing across the uh, across the group. Can you talk a bit more about about sort of your approach, Fidelity's approach to ESG? How do you incorporate different uh, you know metrics and 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 just ratings? You you have your own proprietary ratings. How do you incorporate that into the investments that your that fund managers uh, choose to put in their portfolios? Yeah, I mean, the, the key thing there is that this is done by the analyst team, the research analyst team. We have a sustainable investing team, which is about 30 people globally dispersed all over the map. But the, the investment team does the, the ESG rating. So what that means is you know, company analysts might cover 30 companies. They have to res- they're responsible for putting that rating an A to an E on a company. It's very much trying to be forward looking, just as the investment recommendation would be. They're not looking, you know, using the data that's presented, but thinking about where's the appetite to change or improve that. And that's important part of the engagements that slots in there, right? It's all very much thinking the next year ahead. And it's also about thinking about appetite for change. What is the openness to improve? That that is important. And so we have we have a fixed score A to E. That's aggregated across three pillars, the ES and the G column, uh, three three separate pillars. And there's also trajectory score. So it's uh, improving, deteriorating or stable. And again, we're trying to make sure that we, we have a dynamic score and that can be you know, updated anytime by the analyst. In terms of the PM involvement, just like you know the, the the funds, you have all the ESG ratings, all the fundamental ratings available to all PMs on our central insight system, and the PMs can look at the, the, the research behind the ESG rating, and they can you know they can probe it further with, with the analysts, um, it's back and forth, and just say, hey, okay, what do we need to do to see this rating improve? Let's, let's understand that. It's not about leaning on the analysts to encourage that change, but it's about understanding how can we work with the company to improve that. 
and, and that's kind of how it's integrated. So again, it's 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 with the analysts. So the analysts and the PM are having the conversation. The investment, the sustainable investing team can come into that conversation and certainly inform things like thematic engagement. We're talking about you know the fashion industry. I I, I um supported that with some of my uh, budget allocation to to do a survey on on US fast fashion, and that was part of the investment the sustainable investing team. They worked with us on that. That kind of comes in as well. But the conversation between the analysts and the and, and the PM. That's where it should be, and that's where we've centered the ESG rating, and, and I think that's the, the most important part of it. Well, what about the fidelity ratings that you have um, developed? I guess what does that look like, and is that in response to the fact that there is a lack of you know common standards across the industry at the moment? I know that you know people are trying to change that, but there is no real sort of standard that everyone's following when it comes to investments. There isn't no, and I think I think that you know the, what I ascribe to, and others made this argument, is that you know just like you have a buy sell hold recommendation on a stock, you, you have different views. On a on an, on the ESG credentials of a company, right? It, it all comes down to materiality, right? And we can disagree with that. Everyone has a different view on that, but we think that the most the 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 the, the person with the best or the the member of the team with the strongest view on what is material when it comes to value creation, but also impact or risk, is the analyst. And so what we do is we let the analyst dictate the materiality scores. So when I talk about those three columns, the E, the S, and the G, overlaying all that is a materiality assessment that's been set by the sector team. So I was in the bank's team at the time. We sat down in a room. We compared notes. Say, okay, of these, you know, I think it was 99 different ESG options we had or things that we scored each company on. Of these, what are the key things for banks? And that's going to be different by oil and gas. It's going to be different by consumer companies, by tech. But for each analyst, let's, let's analyst group, let's agree on that commonly, globally. And so with that, we can measure companies and benchmark them on the same basis. So banking in, in the US, we compared to a bank in the UK. And, and that, I think, is, is the right way to do it. And so when we think about the different, you know, scores out there with third party rating agencies, it's, it's you know, we, we do pay attention to that. It doesn't matter. It's important we get our, our homework marked by a third party. Absolutely. But for us, in terms of thinking about the engagement, thinking about where to drill down further, where to do more work, the fidelity rating, we think, is a really good place to start. Do you think there will be common standards that everyone can follow at some point? I think um, I'd, li- I'd love to say so. I think in reality, there's two ways to take that. I think the first one is they're going to be a disclosure standard, you know, a common disclosure standard, and there's going to be a, a common investment standard. If I took the first one, the disclosure standard, I'm talking about things like basically like an accounting standard, like an IRS, like a US GAAP. I can see a world where that exists, and that's going to be very much about disclosure, and I don't think that's too high a hurdle. You know, the US kind of regulatory framework in ESG in general is based on disclosure. It's about asking companies or making companies close a, a sort of common set of, of data points that the investor or the market can then take and, and, and incorporate as they wish into the investment allocation or into the assessment of risk or, re, or reward, right? That's, that's the way the US is doing it. And I think other countries, other, other geographies can get to that. I think that makes sense. On the second part around a common investment framework, I, I think that's going to be very difficult. I think you've seen the EU kind of forge ahead. It's very detailed. It's very thorough. It's difficult to kind of comply with all different pieces of it. Obviously, we're all working very hard on that behind the scenes. Um, but I can't see other geographies having the appetite to be quite as prescriptive um, as the EU has been. And so I don't see that's going to be the case. Um, and that, that does change the way that the assets are managed in different geographies. I think that will be the case for some time. Great. And I just want to clarify something on the on Fidelity's approach. You know, there's ESG funds and then there's incorporating ESG factors into, uh, you know, all the analysis. So what do you do? Is it ESG funds or do you do you incorporate into kind of every every stock choice that um, fund managers and analysts look at? Yeah, no, exactly. So it's a good clarification. So we, we incorporate so every analyst 
has to provide ESG ratings at all the companies that they cover. So whether they cover companies for ESG funds or for global funds that don't think about ESG or local Canadian funds that may or may not incorporate ESG to different extents, right? They, the analysts serve all the funds. That's the model that we have. And there's different PMs that absorb the information. But every company has an ESG rating and a fundamental rating. It is then up to the PM, depending on their mandate and how they communicate the mandate. Obviously, it's very important that they stick to that how they incorporate or how they take into, into account those factors that have been discussed in that rating. So I hope that, hope that clarifies that, but it's, it's, it's right. everywhere, but then it's up to the PM and, the, and, and what they've deemed to be important for their specific mandate. And, and that protects the client choice. Great. Um, back, back to climate change. Much of the narrative has been on replacing fossil fuels. Do you see more conversation in the future on land and soil management, repairing the water cycle and other areas that might have a greater impact? Yeah, it's super interesting. And biodiversity loss um, you know, is a big part of that too. I think at the moment, the way the, corp, the company, you know, when I think about my engagement with the companies, they are razor focused on the scope one, scope two, scope three. And I think that is somewhat seen for them as a sort of low-hanging fruit. I think, I think it's just a reality of where we are right now, particularly in the US, where they've sort of started to catch up, I think, with some of this. But at the moment, it's very much a case of well, how, can we, how can we get to net zero? Let's set a target, and then we can let's fill in the gaps. That's kind of where the workflows are. In terms of the conversations, I, I think it's, it's what's difficult for companies, particularly at large companies, is setting a global target on that. You know, certain geographies obviously have more work to do with regards to some of these these considerations. I used to cover emerging markets back, you know, a few years ago, and and obviously that the, the, some of the challenges there are different, right? And we have to acknowledge that it doesn't mean they're not important. It doesn't mean that biodiversity and soil management and water quality is is not important issues. They obviously are, um, and and they're starting from a, a point, you know, much further behind. I think a stat I, I remember from a meeting uh, last week uh, with a water company. 80% of, of uh, wastewater in emerging markets is, is not treated, right? So that's a, a huge issue. I think for companies at the moment, they are taking, when it comes to the non, let's say within environmental, the non-climate piece, they're taking it on a plant by plant basis. As to say, okay, within that, and they're probably, frankly, probably starting with the US. I don't, I, I'm not a scientific point, but I think they, anecdotally, I kind of get that sense. They're starting with the US, say, okay, let's, what can we do to improve our water management and our, on, on our kind of waste management, which has a direct impact on soil management? Um, and we'll start with the US. And hopefully that means we can roll out some of these solutions more globally. But I think it's, it feels a little early, not that it should be, but it does feel a little bit early in terms of the list of priorities that, that companies are, are, are taking, to be honest. Another question is, what could a recession's impact be on ESG investing? Does the, and also, does the energy crisis in Europe mean more investment opportunities there? Yeah, I think in general terms, you know, the IRA is a, a it's not, it shouldn't be that recessionary sensitive, which is interest an interesting part about it, right? That this these credits are going to make are going to make sense kind of regardless of recession or not. So you, you're going to see that uh, that kind of plow on anyway, I think, which is which is an interesting dynamic in general terms around you know opportunities within 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 green investment. Yeah, I think at, at the moment we're still a little bit. I, I make it I probably make it sound like the IRA is very clear and obvious and and, and it's you know open field and, let, and let's go. In reality, there's still a pieces to, to kind of iron out. So things like local content inclusion in the U.S. Like, what do you have to do to in, to to kind of qualify for a credit? Uh, what sort of um, types of things qualify? What does not qualify? How do we set up supply chains to make sure that the, 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 it's a robust um, assessment? These things are ongoing. So while I probably make it sound a bit too straightforward, there's still some working out to be done. And and so from my side, from the analyst side. It's very much working out within the supply chain, the value chain, who's going to benefit, who's going to share the credit more or less with the end consumer, whether it's you know retail, consumer, residential consumer, uh, consumer or a commercial uh, client. 
that's still to be done. So it's it, the, the direction of travel is there, but who wins and who loses is still a little bit to be dis, to be determined, and and that's where the opportunities lie ultimately. But we're still working through that. Great. Um, just back, back to the ratings for a minute. Uh, Fidelity's ratings. Do do all uh, PMs have access to the ratings, or is it on a mandate by mandate basis on how they use those ESG ratings? Uh, maybe talk a little bit more about that. Yes, yeah, so all PMs have access. I can open the Insight tile I've got in front of me here from earlier on today. Uh, you can type in the company name, uh, and it comes up with the all the research that we've had over you know over history at Fidelity. So you've got you know over thirty years of of, of equity research history in that Insight uh, portal. Same with ESG. So the ESG is obviously a lot newer than that. So we have a, we had a V1 version one system. We rolled out version two uh, last year. I've talked about that a few times. Different calls here, um, and so that V2 system is live and and it's available to all PMs. Uh, at their fingertips and, and they can drill down. So it's, you know, I can open up a company, pick your company. I can open up the ES and the G column. I can click and see what the analyst has written. All the data is integrated into that as well. So it's all, it's all brought in there. It's all in one place. And so for me, the biggest use case is that for maybe it's interesting to the folks on the line is when I talk, when I talk about engagements. So when I say, okay, I'm going to meet with a company. Um, what are the most pertinent issues? What are the most material issues that we think need to change or could we see improvement? Let's pull that down from the rating. And we'll, we'll go from there, right? And 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 that is kind of a an important part of the workflow um, that wasn't there historically. So while we integrate a lot of these factors, maybe the formalization wasn't quite there. And and that is important when you try to have a robust conversation with the company. You need to be informed. You need to understand well, where is this coming from. You know, you, you understand. You know, they, they need to know that you understand the issues or you understand the companies in the sector and the considerations when they try and make targets. And and that makes that conversation much more. Uh, fruitful, I think, for all of us, and, and I think it's much more um, useful all around. Um, you cover U.S. financials too, and I want to get a quick overview of kind of what you're seeing there. But before that, just to connect these two themes, ESG and financials, um, where where do you see sort of the role of the financial industry when it comes to funding the transition? There's lots of technology, lots of physical assets that need, you know, trillions of dollars of investments. Um, are capital markets in the U.S. Um, coming up with uh, innovative products and, and are they, you know, are they are they there to help fund the transition? What do you see from that um, part of the market? Yeah, it's a you know we talked about G fans earlier. G fans is a part of that, and, and signing up for these these agreements to, to try and move capital around that's absolutely part of it. But I think as well you have to be, you have to acknowledge that you 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 still need you know fresh IPOs in the space to to provide opportunity greenfield opportunity to 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 deploy finance. Right, we're talking about private markets as well. Private markets are going to be will play a role in in funding, particularly earlier stage um, investments in in the space, particularly around the impact area. Um, but in general, I think with, with the with sort of public markets, it's it's very much about you know how do you how do you support um, you know various M and A or do you, how do you encourage kind of um, capex allocations when you when you engage with companies how do you how, how do you kind of um, respond to to um, different ideas that they may have to decarbonize or how do you respond to um, trade offs that they might have in their business and, and provide encouragement so I think that's the way. I would sort of phrase it. It's it's a little bit more about rewarding the companies that are um, making these investments in a sensible way and and demonstrating transition. And I think by doing so, protects whether it's protecting their earnings base, reducing their the business risk, or whether it's growing a new franchise. I think it's incumbent on capital markets to identify that to then support that the, those kind of transitions to and support that higher growth or whatever it be, higher margins, whatever the attribute is. But it's it's that combination of engaging with companies. And then, and then, kind of making sure you identify the opportunities that where the most attractive returns or growth opportunities come from as a result of those transition 
uh, investments. And uh, just quickly, we have a minute left. Uh, U.S. financials, uh, more broadly, not necessarily ESG related. Um, where you know, what's the health of that market like? Where are the opportunities that you're seeing? Yeah, in one minute, I think we've got. You know, I, I talked I was on last on Fidelity Connects in August. We talked then about um, being. You know, typically this the playbook would be cycle early in the cycle. You buy financials. Typically, that's the playbook. But back in August, they weren't valued for that. I, I felt right now in Q3 earnings, we've seen a few. Yeah, the, she, the tree has been shaken in some areas and, and some of these names have, have fallen from grace. Maybe it's a difficult quarter, one particular issue. And so that, I think, is open opportunities. And so you're starting to see that valuation marry up with where it probably should be at this point in the cycle. And that makes the, the space much more interesting than it was when we spoke in August. Great. Um, I will leave it there. A uh, Lots more to talk about, obviously, but I'm sure you'll be back soon and uh, we can dig into all these issues uh, again. Um, thank you so much for joining us. No, thanks, Brian. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts, And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.